Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. This week on The California Report magazine. There's something about those moments when your life changes suddenly, dramatically. You remember the tiniest details. For the Robles family, it's the sounds and images from the night the firestorm hit Santa Rosa. We cannot sleep at that time. It's so windy. It's so dark. The power went out twice. Then the phone started ringing. I heard only evacuate, but I don't know. I don't understand what means evacuate for what for what reason. Fire, fire, um, big fire. a big fire. We see the thick smoke, you know, and the, the fire is there, but we don't know what what will happen next. The Robles family worked as caregivers at a tiny assisted living home. The family also lived there, and when it burned, they lost their jobs and their home. I'm Sasha Coca, and on this week's show, wildfire. I can see the fire. I've been trying to call 911 for the last 15 minutes and nobody's answered. We'll look back at some of the devastating fires that have hit the state over the last year. We'll hear how a tiny community radio station in Lake County has become a lifeline for listeners calling in with eyewitness accounts. Okay, now it's just flared up on that second ridge over Hendrick. Oh boy. Yeah, it's pretty intense. We'll also hear how firefighters in Mendocino County are coping with trauma. And a new mom laboring in a Santa Rosa hospital that had to be evacuated now celebrates her baby's first birthday. But first, the story of the Robles family, who saw flames edging just feet from the Santa Rosa care home where they lived and worked. Charlie Robles, his wife, Crystalyn, and his mother-in-law, Alicia, along with his seven-year-old son, Johan, all sprang into action. I need to wake up everybody one by one and put in the wheelchair. And Johan, who has ADHD, had to push one of those wheelchairs outside, embers flying. He was yelling and, and telling me, Mom, um, I'm scared. Yeah, I'm scared. And I told to my son, no, Johan, just go. Don't look back, just go. Did it ever occur to you that maybe I should just get my family out and Go. We wanted to save lives together. 
we, we will go together alive. There was still one more resident left inside, a retired Cal Fire captain named Farrell Mead. He'd worked on the fire lines for years. His job was so physically demanding, he retired with disabilities. And at 76, he was bedridden. And he's big and taller than me. So Charlie Robles, a skinny man, half the captain's size, hoisted him into his wheelchair, then pushed him out to the side of the road, next to the three other elderly residents lined up in their wheelchairs. The Robles's car was trapped in the garage, so Johan and his grandmother Alicia desperately waved down passing cars. One passed, didn't stop. Then a mother and teenage son pulled over. They squeezed all four of the elderly residents and all four of the Robles family into their two cars and drove them to a nearby hospital. But then, two hours later, the hospital had to be evacuated. Meanwhile, across town, Captain Farrell Mead's family, his wife, adult kids, his grandkids, were all evacuating to safety, too. They took shelter in different places. But then, a day later, it hit them. I remember my husband just sitting there kind of, where's my dad? Why haven't we heard from him yet? Then it kind of sunk in, like, where is he? That's Holly Mead, the captain's daughter-in-law. She called the care home in Santa Rosa, but the phone just rang and rang. She called hospitals, Red Cross shelters. No one had any record of Farrell Mead. And then she and her family learned his care home had burned down. I just remember when it was dawning on us that here's this sweet man that worked so hard to fight fires and to be taken by a fire was just overwhelming for all of us. Then the family turned on the local TV news and saw the street where the care home used to be and a line of wheelchairs sitting by the side of the road looked closer, and we were able to confirm that it was Farrell's wheelchair. Wow. So, so then it renewed our hope that maybe if the wheelchair wasn't burned or melted, maybe they escaped. So the family started going to shelters, evacuation centers, looking for Farrell. At one of them, they found their father's caregiver, Charlie Robles. He just was so relieved, said, your dad's okay. He's in Sebastopol at a rehabilitation center. He's, he's fine. He's telling the story. And, you know, he has tears in his eyes. It's like it, it dawned on me. They lost their house. They lost their employment. They lost their car. They lost everything except for the, the clothes on their backs. And here they saved these people's lives. That is a true hero. They are heroes. But the Robles family didn't feel like heroes. They were left homeless and unemployed. They had lived at their job site, so they had no renter's insurance. And now, no paycheck. They were sleeping on a relative's living room floor. But then the Mead family set up a GoFundMe account to help. It raised more than $25,000. We rebuilt our lives because of the Mid family and also for the people that, who supported us. Even a small help, uh, it, it gave us a big impact. No? Are you done, Anne? Anne, are you done? And okay. in August, nearly 10 months after the fire, 
the Robles family found a new care home to move into. Changing diaper, you know, the hygiene. Always keep our eye to them for their safety. Right, Lambert? Yeah. All right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> They're back to emptying bedpans, spoon feeding meals. Open your mouth. Open your mouth, Jim. Open your mouth. With the same loving attention they've always given the people they care for. A year after the fire, Farrell Mead, the retired fire captain they rescued, is living in another care home, although he's frail and in hospice. The Robles family has a place to live, and they have jobs. Their biggest concern now? They still don't know the names of the people who picked them up by the side of the road, rescuing them and the four elderly people in their care. We are very grateful. We are very much grateful. We didn't say thank you for everything. So they want to thank them now. If you happen to know that mother and teenage son who were driving near Cardinal Newman High School in Santa Rosa the night the fire broke out last year, drop us a line. Cal Report at kqed.org. And now to rural Lake County. You're listening to KPFZ 88.1 FM. KPFZ is the only local community radio station in the county. It's all volunteer run, and most of the radio hosts are retirees. You're listening, of course, to our stories, our lives, informing and empowering the LGBT community. But in the last few years, Lake County has been hit by wildfire after wildfire. And the volunteers and the DJs have started hosting call-in programs that sound like this. Caller, you're on the air. Uh, yes, I'm calling. I'm um, uh, close to Westgate the gas station. Uh huh. And somebody just called me from the neighborhood and said it's about to blow. Is there any fire over there? No. KQED's Sam Harnett tells us how this little station became a lifeline for the community. It all started with one phone call back in 2012. Somebody called in early in the morning and said there's a fire at the Y. It's up uh, on Highway 20. Andy Weiss was hosting a music show. He's KPFC's station manager. I actually took her call on the air. He broke into programming. Just to report on it. And uh, people started calling in. And I sat there for 10 hours before, before I got relieved by somebody. Since that fire, the station now goes to a live call-in format whenever there's a fire. People call. Yeah, this is Tom out in Scotts Valley. Hi, Tom. And call. Yeah, T. Watts here. Officially hey, T. And call. Oh, hi, this is uh, Butch calling. Hi, hi Butch. KPFZ's hosts try to separate fact from fiction about the fire. I don't know. I don't know what's going on with the ash stuff. They relay updates from officials. This is Supervisor Jim Steele. I just and callers share information. I called the Middletown shelter, and they are full. Other people report on the fire itself. Now it's just flared up on that second ridge over Hendrick. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's pretty intense. Well, I'll try calling back with anything new that comes along. Super. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. The learning curve has been steep at KPFC. Only Andy, the station manager, has experience as a radio reporter. He says the station made mistakes at first. They passed along incorrect information. But they've gotten better filtering information with every fire. This year, they covered the Mendocino Complex fire, California's largest ever. This last fire was really, I think, our best job in doing that because a lot of us are pretty seasoned now. 
There have been so many fires since the drought, KPFZ now has a show all about fire recovery. It's hosted by Betsy Kahn. It was hard to meet up with Betsy during the fires, so Andy told me to call in and have the engineer patch me through during her show. <laughs> and we have another call that waiting. Yeah, hello. This is Sam from KQED Public Radio. Sam, how you doing? I'm doing well, Betsy. Betsy says there aren't many places for locals in Lake County to turn to for information. Like in much of rural America, local media has taken a financial hit with the rise of the Internet. There's only a single newspaper, a public access TV channel, and one news website. People had no other resource, and they discovered KPFC on the radio, and they were just so grateful that there was some place that was providing updates, uh, timely updates and information where to go, how to get assistance. Tell us what Lake County has been through since you started covering this in 2012. I mean, it, it, from the outside, it seems like it's been pretty relentless. Oh, wow, that's a good word for it. 53% of the county has burned in the last few years, 53%, and, and rising. Well. Lake County was already struggling before the fires. It has one of the highest poverty rates in the state. Resources for anything, including a radio station, are scarce. This is the main studio that we do all our programming. KPFZ is run out of an old Victorian off the main street in Lakeport. And this is the messy office. It's all messy, though, because we're community radio. And our last thought is making money. <laughs> it's making radio that's first and foremost. So this is the office and... The station is sparsely decorated. You know, Sam, it's weird because I've been up to a lot of community stations and they all look the same. They all <laughs> you know, Bob Marley posters and uh, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. They have those posters and also a big so. pirate flag. What's hard to find at the station is equipment for reporting. What happened to those tape recorders? It takes Andy a while to find the station's only two recording kits. Oh, here they are. Andy then shows me a room filled with empty boxes and old radios. It's where he hopes reporters will someday sit. If we ever have a newsroom, this will be it. But that's kind of a dream here. But on our budget, and unless you'd like to come up and live here... (laughs) Right, so you're talking like, you know, something like 100000 bucks to develop a newsroom here, if you got that in funding. Sam, <laughs> we, we run this on 50 grand a year, so we'd have to, we're talking about paying the news director 400 bucks a month or something like that. In the meantime, KPFC is going to keep doing what it started back in 2012. Okay, you're listening to KPFZ 88.1 FM. Being a service for those who need it in times of crisis. We are taking calls this morning. Uh, concerning the Mendo Complex fire. Go ahead, caller. You're on the air. For the California Report, I'm Sam Harnett in Lake County. Now we're going to meet a Mendocino County firefighter named Brendan Turner. He's always been the guy who runs toward the car accident, the gunshot, the flames. But the fire that hit his hometown of Redwood Valley last year was far bigger than anything he'd ever faced before. It was seven or eight hours of straight rescue and absolute sheer terror. KQED's Suki Lewis has been staying in touch with Brendan Turner since she covered the fires last year. Here's a dispatch from her most recent visit to Mendocino County. It's kind of almost almost like the conversation. I'm sitting in a classroom at Ukiah High School. A row of plastic white skeletons line a countertop in the corner and anatomy posters are tacked on the walls. 
Three guys, all first responders, sit around me in a semicircle. My name's Corey Bender. Been a medic for 18 years, and actually went to school with Brendan Paramedic School in 1998. My name's Lucas Beck. I'm with Redder Valley Fire. Worked with Brendan. Um, been doing it for 17 years. The third man is Brendan Turner. He's one of those gentle giant types with a shaggy salt and pepper goatee who looks a little out of place, tucked into a rumpled blue dress shirt. I've been somehow involved in emergency services for 23 years. He was the acting fire chief the night the fire swept over the ridge down into the small town of Redwood Valley. Lucas remembers seeing Brendan walking through the firehouse. He looked like a zombie on a mission, and we had not much more communication after that. <laughs> He'd walk through the firehouse like a... Like a, a it was, that, it was, that was not a very flattering description sorry. of me. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, it was, however, a very accurate description. Um, we're not going to... He was very, very driven to uh, take care of what he had to. Turner calls this the switch, his ability to turn off his emotions so he can just do what needs to be done. The description of that night, and it fits to a T is uh, a line in the Metallica song, I was me, but now he's gone. I first met Brendan in December of last year, just a couple of months after the firestorm. He tells me the story of that night as we drive down a two-lane road that divides the valley in two. I was parked here and working on uh, a resource request when uh, when I came in contact with, with a burn patient. Brendan asked and, the man's uh, name. And he kind of cocked his head to the side, which the, Brendan, why are you asking me this? Brendan uh, knows this man well, but his friend is burned so badly that he doesn't recognize him. And then the man tells Brendan that his wife and two teenage kids are still up on the hill in the fire. It's still raging like crazy, and Brendan has to hold back the rescuers. We're not able to help other people if we become victims. Brendan only ever refers to the man as the burn patient, but as he speaks, like a blow to the gut, I suddenly realize who he's talking about. I know what happened on the hill. I know the man and his wife survived, but that their two teenagers, Kai and Cressa Shepard, died. Brendan's in-laws and many of his close friends lost their homes that night. Eight people died. He didn't really have time to stop and think about it. But once the fires were out, there was no getting back to normal. I kind of became a hermit there for a little while. And I would avoid going to a lot of public places in Redwood Valley, and I stopped going to the supermarket that I normally went to unless it was absolutely convenient or I needed something there. He felt like people in town were looking at him differently. His closest friends did see a change in him. At a Christmas party, a friend who'd also been an emergency responder came up to him. And said, um, I think you need to talk to somebody. And without blinking. I, I said, yes, I think that's a good idea. Brendan started talking. The first time I, I met with my therapist, I think that uh, she probably only was able to, 
to hear three quarters of what I said because it was just a deluge. Everything came out. In May, I stopped in to see Brendan again, outside the little market across from the firehouse. It's really nice to see you again after some months. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. It's nice to see you also. He says he's doing well, but it's, it kind of just seems like something you say. As we here, keep talking, Brendan tells me sometimes he wakes up in the night in full fight-or-flight mode. When the wind picks up, his whole body reacts. One of the hardest things um, when you're diagnosed with PTSD is to wrap your head around the fact that you're never going to be the same person you were the day before. Guilt is not one of the things that I feel. Uh, sorrow is a good word. Brendan knew he wasn't the only one feeling these things. So he called up his friend from paramedic school, Corey Bender. Brendan, of all people, called me out of the blue and was like, hey, what do you think about putting a peer group together? And, and I'm like, I think that's an amazing idea. The group isn't led by a therapist. They just get together and talk. I started to explain the feeling that I would get in my chest. One of the members of that group said, oh no, it starts right here and pointed to an area on his chest and it feels like crawling under your skin. And I apologized. I said, oh, I'm sorry, did I already tell you this? He goes, no, I'm telling you what I experienced. It was almost identical. When they were all coming up through the fire service, this just wasn't talked about. Firefighter Lucas Beck says he still struggles with these feelings. There's one day I called him and he could hear it in my voice. And so he just came right over and we sat and talked for a while. Beck told Brendan he felt like he was letting his family down. You were always could handle anything and you were always Superman. And now, you know, now you're crying in the middle of the kitchen for no reason. <laughs> and what happened to dad, you know? And then, so I, I always... I have been worried about that perception, like maybe I don't want my kids to think that I'm hurt or broken, even though maybe I am a little hurt and broken, right? Brendan says more and more people in his profession are now willing to admit they are a little hurt and a little broken. To those folks in, in the first responder community listening, it's a strength, not a weakness, to acknowledge those emotions. And, um, you know, to the community members listening to this, Remember that, that we are human and we have these human emotions. A few months ago, Brendan stepped down as assistant fire chief. While he's still a volunteer, he's got a new job now, teaching high school kids who are thinking about becoming emergency responders. He wants them to go into this work with their eyes wide open. For the California Report, I'm Suki Lewis in Mendocino. And finally, we're going to head back to Santa Rosa to meet a family marking the one-year anniversary of last October's epic firestorm with a first birthday celebration. Their baby was born just as those fires broke out. The Tower 7 on scene, fire around the hospital and on the island. Two hospitals had to evacuate 200 patients, including the baby's mother. She was in active labor. April Demboski checks back in with the family one year later. Just when her contractions started coming steady and hard, the hospital power went out. The generators clicked on, and smoke started creeping into the hallways. That's when Nicole Viam knew the rest of her birth plan was out the window. 
There was a ton of smoke in the hospital. Like, you could visibly see it outside and smell it. Nurses said they had to evacuate, but Nicole had just gotten an epidural. So I couldn't walk or move, which was just not cool. Like, I didn't I didn't like that part of I felt really vulnerable. <laughs> Nicole waited for an ambulance, and by the time her turn came, she had to share the ride with another woman in labor and a third with a newborn in her arms. That left no room for her husband, Ben. The charge nurse explained that, like, this is a disaster. We're following disaster protocol, and no spouses or birth teams or anything are going along on the ambulance. And there was a part of me briefly that was like, but I'm a dad. I'm going to be a dad. Like, I'm. this is us. Ben waited for the bus, and he and Nicole were so relieved when they were reunited at Santa Rosa Memorial. She labored another 12 hours, then agreed to a C-section. <laughs> they had a healthy baby boy and named him after Nicole's favorite baseball player, Adrian Dodger VM. Circle, triangle, square. Now, as Adrian turns one, Nicole and Ben say the memory of his birth is forever woven with this tragedy. So if I go scrolling back through Facebook or whatever to go see his newborn pictures, it's with comments like, oh, God, I'm glad you guys are okay." Nicole and Ben came home to their one-bedroom apartment, feeling fortunate they still had a place to come home to. But the restaurant where Ben worked had burned down. He says it was strange to feel so much joy and be surrounded by so much destruction at the same time. A number of people had lost their homes from the restaurant and had their own experiences, and I'm riding a different wave, and that wasn't the mood around at all. A week after the fires, all the staff got together at the restaurant owner's house. He signed paychecks for every server, every busser. Then, two weeks after that, Ben got another check in the mail, then another, For two months, they kept coming. He's not sure if it was the owner's insurance or goodwill, but in the end, the fires granted Ben a paid paternity leave. It it was sweet to be able to be together so much, and he really bonded with the baby, I think. And, you know, a lot of people metaphorically felt it uh, as the baby coming out of the ashes, you know, the life coming from the ashes and stuff, and... I feel that. I feel like it was a big time for our community and me personally to be reborn in some way, you know. How do you feel reborn? (laughs) Well, I mean, I've, when I was a lot younger, I made a lot of mistakes and I was really sad and I didn't want to feel my feelings and I turned to the most natural uh, way I could fine to cover that all up and started using uh, drugs and I started using. She got into opioids. Prescription pills, um, heroin for a little little bit of time. Nicole had been clean for nine years when she became pregnant. And this was something she wanted to feel. She told her doctor if she needed an epidural, she didn't want any fentanyl in it. She didn't want to feel high. Because I'd remembered seeing like other friends and stuff, they'd used it and they were feeling good and stuff. And I didn't, I didn't want that to be a part of my story. But when the fire broke out and she was transferred to the new hospital, those special instructions got lost in the chaos. And then when, I, when they went to change the drug, I saw the tube said fentanyl on it. And, it was, and, I, and by that point, I was starting to feel, feel the itchies. It was her first test seeing how her sobriety and motherhood would line up. 
Could she handle so many things going wrong without falling apart? And she was fine. She called her sponsor and talked it through. I was okay. I was okay with it. It was just, it just was something that had happened, you know? And that's how she's approached raising her baby, taking everything as it comes. A lot changed in my life when he came, and I'm trying to be the best human being I can be. She says taking care of Adrian has taught her how to take care of herself. For The California Report, I'm April Dembaski in Santa Rosa. That's our show for today. You can hear much more of our wildfire coverage online at californiareport.org. And if you missed any of today's show, subscribe to our podcast, California Report Magazine. Just look for the bear wearing earbuds. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Susie Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller, with additional engineering from Katie McMurrin. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon, and our team includes Erica Kelly, David Marks, Marisol Medina Cadena, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from College Futures Foundation. More graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And the James Irvine Foundation, expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who are working but struggling with poverty. More at Irvine.org. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.